Psalm 77. To the choir master, according to the Judithan, a psalm of Asaph. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and He will hear me. In the day of my trouble I seek the Lord. In the night my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints, Selah. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. When the, will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has His steadfast love forever ceased? Are His promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has He in anger shut up His compassion? Selah. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. With your arm you redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. Selah. When the waters saw you, O God... When the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Let us go now to Luke and read chapter 8, verses 22 through 25. Luke eight twenty-two. One day Jesus got into a boat with His disciples, and He said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke, and he rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? This is now the reading of God's holy word. May he add his blessing to the preaching of the word of God this morning. There are two questions that I would like to ask concerning this text that is open before us today. Firstly, what does this story about the calming of the stormy sea teach us about Jesus? Secondly, what does this story about the calming of the stormy sea teach us about being a disciple of Jesus? That this story is meant to teach us something about Jesus, I think is made very clear in the question that is asked at the end. The disciples marveled, saying to one another, 
Who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? Who is this man? That is a great question. I hope you would agree. And I will have you notice that three more stories follow this one in Luke's Gospel that will prompt us to ask the same question. Who is this man? In Luke 8, 26-39, we learn that Jesus cast demons out of a man. In Luke 8, 40-48, we learn that He healed a woman of chronic illness. In Luke 8, 49-56, we learn that Jesus raised a 12-year-old girl from the dead. Each one of these stories should prompt us to ask the question, Who then is this? Who is this who has authority over the wind and the waves of the sea? Who is this one who has authority even over demons, sickness, and death? Who is this Jesus of Nazareth? Well, let's focus our attention on the story of Jesus calming the stormy sea. What does this story teach us about who Jesus is? There are two things. First, it shows us that Jesus is truly human. Secondly, it shows us that Jesus is truly God. Now, that Jesus is truly human is evident through this story, and it is evident throughout. He used His human mind and His human will to choose to take His disciples to the other side of the lake, to the Gentile land of the Gerasenes. And He carried out the decision made with His human mind and will through His human body. He walked as you and I walk, and He got into the boat. And then He used His human voice, powered by human lungs and shaped by a human tongue, to speak in a human language to other human beings, saying, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. And so they set out. And as they journeyed across the lake, Jesus' human body and soul grew tired. He was physically and probably mentally exhausted from all the travel and from all the teaching. He had been ministering to, to multitudes of people. And so as they sailed, we are told that he fell asleep in Luke 8, 23. So then, the first thing that we must say about Jesus in answer to the question, who then is this, that he commands even winds and water and they obey him, is that he is a man. He possessed a true human body and a true human soul. You might be tempted to think that this is a throwaway observation, one that is so obvious it hardly needs to be mentioned But I think you would be mistaken. First of all, many throughout the history of the church have erred by denying that Jesus is truly human. I said throughout the history of the church. Well, these would not properly be in the church, but uh, these are heresies that have arisen in the church throughout history. These errors, they take many forms. Some have denied that He has a true human body. Others have denied that He has a true human soul, that is to say a human mind and a human will along with affections. And these errors must be avoided. Christ was and is truly human in every respect. Secondly, this is no throwaway observation because our salvation depends upon the true humanity of Christ. While it is true that no mere man could earn the salvation of sinners, it is also true that a man had to do it. Though Christ is no mere man, He truly is a man. And for this reason, He is qualified to be our Redeemer and our Savior. A true son of Adam had to live an obedient life and die a sacrificial death to bring many sons and daughters of Adam to glory. And this is what Jesus Christ has done. 
The scriptures speak of the necessity of the true humanity of Christ for our salvation in many different places. I find Hebrews 2 to be very beautiful. It says, among other things, that Christ had to be made like His brothers in every respect so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because He Himself has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. That is Hebrews 2, verses 17 through 18. A very important text. In order to be our Redeemer, in order to be our Savior, He had to be made like His brethren in every respect. In other words, He had to be truly human. And something similar is said about Christ in Hebrews 4.15. I quote, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Christ was truly human. He is truly human. The eternal Son of God took to Himself a true human body and a reasonable soul so that He might function as our Redeemer. He assumed a true human body and a true human soul so that He might lift us up and bring us to God by the work that He has done. Who then is this that He commands even wind and water and they obey Him? First, He is Jesus the Messiah, a true man. Secondly, He is Jesus the Messiah, one who is more than a man. Indeed, He is the eternal Son or Word of God, the second person of the triune God incarnate. And this is demonstrated by the authority that Jesus exercised even over the wind and the waves of the sea. This is meant to grab our attention. You and I do not have authority over the wind and the waves of the sea. But Jesus does. In verse 23b, the second portion, we read, And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased. And there was a calm. So it is clear this was a miracle. It was an incredible miracle that Jesus performed. The storm that came upon Jesus and His disciples in that boat was large and it was furious, so much so that the disciples, some of whom were fishermen, by the way, they knew what it was like to be out on a boat in the lake, the Sea of Galilee, and to be threatened by storms. But they were terrified. They were convinced that they were dead men. Yet, the wind immediately died down and the sea became calm at the moment that Christ sent forth His Word. This was a miracle. It was a demonstration that Jesus was no ordinary man, and so it is no wonder that the disciples marveled and asked, Who then is this? In fact, they were filled with fear, being in His presence. They knew they were in the presence of no mere man. They marveled and they asked, Who then is this that even He has the power to command the wind and the waves? But I think the true meaning or significance of this miracle becomes clear when we look back upon the Old Testament Scriptures to think about the theme of stormy waters that threaten the lives of God's people and God's power and authority over those waters. And so let me briefly remind you of this biblical theme. I think these stories from the Old Testament are to be in our minds as we consider this episode where Jesus 
calms the stormy sea with His disciples. First, do not forget about the turbulent waters that covered the earth at the beginning of the first day of creation and before God formed and fashioned the earth into a place suitable for human habitation. We're to think about the turbulent waters that at first covered the earth in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. The deep here is a reference to the primordial oceans. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. In verse 6 of Genesis 1, we read, And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And in verse 9 of Genesis 1, we read, And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. The earthly realm that was created by God in the beginning was at first not a place for humans to dwell. We might say that the waters threatened our very existence, but God subdued the waters. And how did He do it? How did He subdue the waters? By the word of His power. So when Christ calmed the stormy sea with His voice, He did it to show His disciples and us today, His disciples who were with Him and us who are alive today, who He truly was. He was no mere man. He is the eternal Word of the Father, the one through whom the heavens and earth were created in the beginning, and the one through whom the primordial waters were separated and subdued. He is the eternal Word of God incarnate. The Apostle John states this truth at the very beginning of his Gospel. He speaks of Jesus Christ when he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And then in verse 14, John famously says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. I think we should remember that John the same John who wrote what I have just read, was in this boat with Jesus. He witnessed Him calm the stormy sea with the word of His power. And so perhaps He was even reflecting upon that fact when He penned these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This Jesus, who is He? He is the person of the Word, the eternal Word of God, come in the flesh. He is the same Word who was with God in the beginning through whom God created the heavens and the earth. And so, He demonstrates Himself to be more than a mere man, but instead God incarnate. Jesus Christ is the Word. Secondly, and very briefly, I'll remind you of the story of the flood. It was God who commanded the flood waters to rise, and it was God who made them to fall again. It was God who provided safe passage for Noah and his family, along with all of those animals. We should remember that story. The flood waters of judgment came over the earth. God caused them to rise. He caused them to fall again. And He provided safe passage through the turbulent waters for Noah and his family. That ark was a type of Christ. Thirdly, I will remind you of the parting of the waters of the Red Sea by the hand of Moses at the time of the Exodus. Now granted, the waters of the sea parted when Moses lifted up his staff, Exodus 14, 16. But the story is very clear. 
it was the God, that it was God who parted the waters of the sea. Moses was simply his instrument. The Lord will fight for you, and you only have to be silent, says Exodus 14.14. 14. Things were very different with Jesus Christ, though. Notice that Jesus spoke with an authority all His own when He calmed the wind and the waves. It was not God doing this work through Him as if He were a mere man and a mere prophet. No, He stood up and He Himself, with an authority that He Himself possessed, rebuked the wind and the waves. They died down. The sea was calm. And so He is like Moses in this regard, but He is clearly greater than Moses. Fourthly, I will very briefly remind you of the story of the stopping up of the waters of the Jordan River in the days of Joshua at the time of the conquest. Joshua 3 is where this story is found. God did that for Israel. Joshua and especially the priests were his instruments. Jesus here demonstrates that he is greater than Joshua and the priests of Aaron, for he commanded the wind and the waves with his own authoritative word. The fifth and last Old Testament text I would like to remind you of is the story of Jonah. This, I think, is a very interesting connection. As a bit of a side note, I was reading through the book of Jonah in my morning devotions on the same day that I started preparation for this sermon, and I thank the Lord for that. It was fresh in my mind. But I think if you were to read Jonah chapter 1 and then read the story that we are now considering in Luke 8, you would see that there are many similarities And there are some very important differences as well between Jonah 1 and Luke 8. Jonah was a rebellious prophet who abhorred the thought of ministering to the Gentiles in Nineveh. But what do we see here? Jesus was happy to go to the Gentiles. He in fact said to His disciples, Let us go across the lake to this region where Gentiles live. Let us minister to them. And we'll hear about His ministry there in this Gentile region in just a moment. So there is something similar about Jesus and Jonah, clearly. uh, But there is a great difference here. Jesus was a true and faithful prophet of God. A storm arose and threatened Jonah's life as a judgment from God. Jonah 1.4 says, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. The storm of Luke 8 was not sent by God to judge Jesus and His disciples, but it was permitted by Him to be used for His glory. Both of the stories are similar in that Jesus and Jonah are said to have been fast asleep. Jonah 1.5-6 says, But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, in a panic of course, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Jonah could not calm the storm, for he was a mere man. In fact, his prayers would do no good, for he was in rebellion against God. But the relief came to the people in Jonah's boat only after Jonah, that rebellious prophet, was thrown overboard. After that, the Lord caused the storm to cease. The text tells us that these pagans who were spared feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. That is Jonah 1.16. So on the most basic level, we are to see that in this story of Jonah, God Himself commanded the wind and sea to make it rage, and He made it calm again. And here in our passage for today, Christ demonstrates that He possesses this same power and authority, for He is no mere man, 
but He is instead the eternal Word of God incarnate. I think on a bit of a deeper level, I do believe that we are to compare and contrast Jesus and Jonah. Both were prophets called to bring light to the Gentiles. Both calmed the stormy sea. Both spent three days in Sheol and in a tomb and were resurrected, Jonah in a typological way, I think, and Christ in reality. But Jesus is a far greater prophet. He was obedient to the Father. He, carried, he cared for the nations, and He did not merely carry within Him the Word of God. He is the Word of God incarnate. And He demonstrated this when He calmed the stormy sea with His voice. Who then is this? That He commands even winds and water, and they obey Him. He is the eternal Word of God, the Creator of heaven and earth, God Almighty, the second person of the triune God incarnate. He is the one who has authority even over the winds and waves of the sea. He calmed the waters of the Sea of Galilee. More importantly, He has calmed the waters of God's wrath for all who are in the boat with Him, being united to Him by faith. He, like Jonah, would calm the waters of God's wrath by being cast into the grave and by going down into Sheol through the suffering and death experienced on the cross. And He, like Jonah, would rise again on the third day in victory. This is who Jesus is, the eternal Word of God, incarnate, our Redeemer and our Savior. Now we come to our second question. What does this story about Jesus' calming of the stormy sea, teach us about being a disciple of Jesus. I have five observations to make. Firstly, being a disciple of Jesus does mean that we must get into the boat with Him to follow wherever He leads. A disciple is a follower or learner. That is what the word means. So to have faith in Christ is to follow after Him. To have faith in Christ is to learn from Him. It is to obey Him. And we see an image of this in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These Gospels tell us all about men following after Jesus in a very literal way. He called them, and they left their old way of life behind and walked with Him in the world to learn from Him and to obey Him. And here in the story that is before us today, we see a particular instance of this. Jesus spoke to His disciples saying, let us go across to the other side of the lake. And so they set out. They obeyed His voice. They responded to His call. They got into the boat with Jesus and they followed after Him. Though we do not see Jesus in the flesh presently, the same is still true for you and for me. I want you to wrap your mind around this, brothers and sisters. If you have faith in Christ, then you are His disciple. This means that you are a follower or learner of Jesus. Of course, we walk with Him by faith and not by sight. He leads us, not in the flesh now, but by His Word and Spirit. And He is certainly present with us. We must know this. He is present with us. Though He is not present bodily, He is present with us truly. He is separated from us bodily, being now enthroned in heaven at the Father's right hand. But He is present with us to lead us and to teach us according to His divinity and in the Holy Spirit that He has poured out. So I want you to see this, brothers and sisters. We are true disciples of Jesus 
Just as those who walked with Him in His earthly ministry were disciples, followers, learners, so too are we. We are not less disciples of Jesus, but I will even argue we are more so followers of Jesus in certain respects. And so I ask you, do you think of yourself as a disciple, a learner, and follower of Jesus? The disciples who walked with Him in His earthly ministry certainly thought of themselves in this way. In a sense, it was easier for them to be mindful of this relationship. When they woke up in the morning, what did they see? They saw their rabbi in the flesh, and they heard his words with their physical ears. They could hear his voice, you see. For you and I who live nearly 2,000 years after his resurrection and ascension, things are different. We cannot see him now, and we do not hear his audible voice, but we are no less disciples of his. Do not forget about the commission that Christ gave to His apostles and through them to the church before He ascended bodily. He said, Go therefore and make what? Disciples of all nations. Jesus did not stop making disciples when He ascended bodily. No, the work was just beginning for Him. Many more disciples of Jesus have been made after He was taken from our sight than in the days of His earthly ministry. And we might ask, well, how can this be? How can a rabbi have disciples if he is not present with them? Well, the answer to this question is that a disciple, a rabbi cannot have disciples if he is not present with them. They, they cannot. But Jesus is present with us. We have His Word. We have His Holy Spirit. Christ is with us, not in His humanity, but in His divinity. For, as the eternal Word of, or Son of the Father, He is as omnipresent as He has ever been. And this might sound strange to some, but our privileges as disciples of Jesus are greater and not less than the privileges experienced by the disciples of Jesus when He walked with them on the earth. I've actually heard Christians say this. Oh, that we could have been amongst those who saw Christ in His incarnation. You know, things would have been so much better for us if we lived then, if we were able to see Jesus in the flesh, if we were able to hear His audible words, my spiritual life would be so much better. My growth would be greatly advanced if only I could have walked with Jesus here on this earth. Have you ever heard someone express that sentiment? Maybe you've thought of that yourselves. But it is not true. In fact, the Scriptures point us in a different direction. The Scriptures want us to see that our privileges as disciples of Jesus are not less. They are instead greater now that Christ has ascended to the Father's right hand. In a sense, in a very important sense, Christ is nearer to us now than He was to His disciples when He walked with them on earth. In a sense, Christ is more intimately involved with us now. He is more active in His teaching now than He was when He was ministering on earth. Christ Himself taught this. I'm thinking of His words to His disciples as recorded in John 14, 18. He spoke of His death, His resurrection, and His ascension, saying, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. In John 14, 23, He said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. And in John sixteen seven, he said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. 
The helper that Jesus here refers to is the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit would be poured out in a greater way after Christ's ascension to the Father's right hand. And He says to His disciples, It is to your advantage that I go. In other words, things will be even better for you. And in the passages that I cited just a moment ago from John 14, uh, verses 18 and 23, He talks of coming to His disciples and being with them, making His home with them. You see, uh, indeed, Christ is present with us in a very intimate way. He is our rabbi, and we are His disciples even still. A rabbi cannot effectively teach and lead his disciples if he is not present with them, but Christ is present with us, and we are His disciples today. Do not forget what Christ said to His apostles after commissioning them, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So if you have faith in Christ today, He is your rabbi. He is your teacher And you are His disciple. You are His follower. You are His learner. He is present with you to lead you and to teach you. And my question for you is this. Are you mindful of this reality? Do you arise in the morning being mindful of the duty that you have to follow Jesus and to be taught by Him? When you open His Word to read, you are reading the very words of Jesus, the eternal Word of God incarnate. And if you are united to Christ by faith, He has given you the Holy Spirit to help you and to guide you into all truth. How does Christ teach His disciples now that He has ascended on high? He teaches us by His Word and Spirit. He teaches us and guides us day by day, and He does so Lord's Day after Lord's Day. His presence with us as we assemble together on the Lord's Day is made audible and visible through the public reading and preaching of the Word of God and in the sacrament of the Lord's table. Again, the question is this, are you living like a disciple of Jesus? Are you following Him? Are you walking with Him? Are you learning from Him continuously and especially Lord's Day after Lord's Day? Are you hearing, learning, and obeying His Word? Are you following His lead? Are you learning from the lessons He brings to you even through the experiences of this life? You are a disciple of Jesus if you have faith in Him. Secondly, true disciples of Jesus will not be immune from the storms of life, that is to say, trials and tribulations of various kinds. I'm not going to linger long on this point because I think it is rather obvious. These disciples of Jesus experienced this great and terrifying storm while Jesus was in the boat with them. It was Jesus who said, let us get in the boat and let us go to the other side of the lake. He took them out onto the lake. He was present in the boat with them and then this storm arose. And it was a great and terrifying storm. If this is true then we should not be surprised to experience storms in this life as we walk with our Savior in this world. Peter speaks of the storms of persecution when he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial 
when it comes upon you to test you as though some strange thing were happening to you. Uh, To put it into the terms of our text, Peter says, Brethren, do not be surprised by the storms of life when they arise. Yes, even the disciples of Jesus will experience storms, trials, and tribulations. James speaks of trials and tribulations more broadly when he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and steadfastness, let it have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This story about Jesus calming the wind and waves by the word of His power teaches us many things about being His disciples, one of them being that true disciples of Jesus will not be immune from the storms of life. Thirdly, true disciples of Jesus do not always display strong faith. This is the third observation that I wish to make. True disciples of Jesus do not always display strong faith. This is simply the reality of things. The faith of these disciples of Jesus appeared strong when they were on land. It appeared to be strong when the sun was shining upon them and the skies were blue. But what happened when they were out on the sea and the wind and the waves threatened? We are told that they were terrified. They went and awoke Jesus saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And brothers and sisters, I think it is an important observation to make. These disciples of Jesus had weaknesses. They failed in this moment to truly trust in Christ. In fact, He would rebuke them for their lack of faith just after this. I think it is important to notice the weaknesses and failings of true disciples of Jesus as recorded in the Scriptures so that, one, we do not despair over our own weaknesses and failings, and two, so that we do not judge one another too harshly within the church. Should we strive to have strong faith? Of course we should. Should we encourage one another to have strong faith? Yes, of course, we must encourage and exhort one another in Christ Jesus. But the reality is that in this present evil age, even true disciples of Jesus will not always exhibit strong faith. We often sin. We are tainted by false beliefs. Sometimes we doubt At other times, we are overcome by fear. And yes, we long for the day when all these corruptions will be removed. But until then, this is the reality. Imperfections and corruptions do remain within us. And the church needs to be reminded of this reality so that we might be patient with one another in Christ Jesus. This theme has become more and more important to me with the passing of time, brothers and sisters. It is very important that true doctrine be preached, that exhortations be given to walk with Christ and to obey His commandments. It is important that the Word of God be ministered faithfully to the Christian congregation. That is all true. No compromise should ever be made as it pertains to Uh, the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. Do you agree with this? Yes. But guess what? We're all frail people, aren't we? We're all at different places as it pertains to our growth in Christ, as it pertains to our maturity. 
And I think the scriptures hold out some of these stories to us, like the weakness of the faith of the disciples in the boat on the stormy sea, or even worse yet, Peter himself denying Christ three times on the night of his trial. These stories are held out before us in part so that we might, on the one hand, magnify God and His grace to us, but also so that we might be, I think, patient with one another. There are three verses that come to mind regarding this point here. Romans 14.1 says something very interesting. Paul, writing to the church in Rome, says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. What is the church to do with the brother or sister who is weak in faith? Are they to be harsh with them? Are they to bar them from the table, let's say? Are they to keep them out? Paul says you had better not. The one who is weak in faith needs to be welcomed, but with this exception, not to quarrel over opinions, meaning not if they are to be not if they are going to be divisive within the congregation. So the church is to welcome and receive into the membership those who are weak in faith. These are to be cared for, but not if they are going to stir up division within the church. Colossians 1.28 also comes to mind, a very precious passage to me. Here Christ says, Christ, excuse me, here Paul says, Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So he sums up his ministry in this way. What does Paul do and what do his associates do? They preach Christ. They teach Christ. They warn. They exhort. For what purpose? So that on the last day, everyone who is under their charge might be presented to God as mature in Christ. But does that not apply? imply that not all are mature in Christ presently? That there is a, a teaching, an exhortation that needs to take place within the church so that men and women would be moved on towards maturity. And the thing I am pressing you with now, brothers and sisters, is how could that possibly happen unless we are gracious towards one another in the meantime, patient with one another, welcoming, long-suffering? I think that is the meaning. The third verse that comes to mind is 1 Thessalonians 5.14. Here Paul instructs the whole church, saying, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. So if there is anyone who is idle, who refuses to work, they're to be admonished. Encourage the faint-hearted. So if there is someone who is weak and faint-hearted, if they are discouraged, what do they need? They need to be encouraged in the Lord. Help the weak, Paul says. So are there any who are weak in their midst. Come alongside them and help them. And then we have this little remark Be patient with them all. Be patient with them all. So this is how the church is to to care for one another. It's to be marked by by patience. They're to be long-suffering with each other, with each other's weaknesses and failings. Even the apostles of Jesus had moments of weakness. And I mention this not to excuse sin, not to excuse immaturity or faithlessness, but to encourage patience and kindness amongst the members of the Christian congregation. Before we move on from this point, notice what the disciples of Jesus did in their moment of weakness and fear. They ran to Jesus to petition Him. And this is what we must do in our moments of faithlessness, fear, and anxiety. We must run to God through Jesus, our High Priest, 
to petition Him in prayer. And we must remember what He has said to, to us. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. That is Psalm 121, verses 3 through 4. Fourthly, true disciples of Jesus will be tried and tested so that their faith may grow stronger. We might ask the question, why did Jesus allow his disciples to experience this harrowing ordeal? Why did he take them out onto the sea? Why did he sleep for a time and allow the storm to rage? Why did he permit his disciples to experience this fear and this sense of total despair? It was to teach them to trust in him. It was to strengthen their faith. And so he spoke to them saying, where is your faith? What did he do except rebuke them and say, where is your faith? Have stronger faith was the exhortation. And certainly these disciples of Jesus would look back upon this storm and remember the Lord's faithfulness when experiencing storms of a different kind later in life. And know this, they experienced many storms after Christ ascended. Most of them would be killed for their faith. Peter, tradition tells us, was crucified for his faith. John was badly persecuted and exiled for a time, but it was among other... But it was, among other things, this experience with Jesus on the Sea of Galilee that prepared them to face the trials and tribulations of life and even the great trial of death with faith and with courage. They learned that Christ would always be with them. They learned that Christ had the power to calm the fierceness of God's wrath and to save them from destruction. And so they were strengthened to walk with Him faithfully to the very end. And those who have walked with Christ for many years will know what this is like. Seasoned believers are able to look back upon earlier storms and to remember God's faithfulness. Isn't that true? Can't you do that, brothers and sisters? Maybe you can't if you're very, very young, but I think everyone else can look back upon their Christian experience. They're able to consider the storms of life that they have endured And they are to remember that God has been faithful to keep them. We are able to be strengthened, therefore, in the face of the present storm, whatever it may be, by remembering that God has been with us. That psalm that I read at the beginning of this sermon, Psalm 77, uh, really has that theme to it. The, The psalmist is despairing. The psalmist is discouraged. He's wrestling within himself. Well, is God going to be distant from me for, forever? Has He forgotten me? Has, it, has His grace dried up? You know, and that's my paraphrase of what he is saying. But what does the psalmist do? He begins to remember the past and how faithful God has been in the past. And in this way, his soul is encouraged. Fifthly and lastly, the faith of Jesus' disciples will grow stronger as they grow in their understanding of who Christ is and what He has done for them. In a way, we return to the first half of the sermon with this final observation under the second half. Jesus did not take His disciples out on the sea and into the storm to merely test their faith. He took them out on the sea and allowed them to experience this storm to also show forth His power and His glory. So then it was not only the weakness of the disciples' faith that was exposed, but the power, glory, and greatness of the object of their faith was also put on display. If they had remained on the land 
And if the storm had never arisen, the power and glory of Christ would have never been displayed. And so I say to you, brothers and sisters, that our faith grows stronger as we grow in our understanding of who Christ is and what He has done for us. And we learn this by examining the Holy Word of God, yes, but also we learn this as we experience the trials and tribulations of life and as God and Christ show themselves faithful to us. Our faith will grow stronger as we grow in our understanding of who Christ is and what He has done for us. We see this principle play out in the Gospel of Luke and in Acts. The disciples, if we're to follow the story throughout Luke and trace it into the book of Acts, the disciples do mature. They grow from being weak in faith to strong in faith. But how does this growth take place? Well, what we learn is that they grow as their understanding of Christ grows. I almost can't wait to get to the very end of Luke's Gospel. Because it's there, after Christ is raised from the dead, that the disciples' eyes seem to be truly opened. I think they knew Christ truly before this. But they still had darkness concerning the true identity of Christ in their, in their understanding. But when Christ is raised from the dead and when He appears to His disciples and He begins to open the Scriptures and, and show them how the Scriptures point forward to Him, it's as if a light bulb goes off and then all of a sudden these disciples are transformed from timid, meek, and unsure people to those who are deeply devoted to Christ and to the carrying out of the commission that He gave to them. And then they do so in Luke's second volume, that is to say in the book of Acts. Our faith in Christ will grow stronger. Our faith will grow stronger as our understanding of who Christ is truly and what He has accomplished increases. Who then is this that He commands even winds and water and they obey Him? That, my friends, is a very important question. These disciples of Jesus would be prompted to ask this same question in, in different ways many times before Christ ascended into heaven even if it is not recorded for us, they must have wondered, who then is this whom the demons obey? Who then is this who has the power over sickness? Who then is this who has the power over death? The disciples of Jesus grew in their faith, not through natural self-improvement, the development of discipline or by willpower alone, but by growing in their knowledge of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Who then is this? He is the Messiah, the eternal Word of God incarnate. He is our Creator, our Sustainer, and our Redeemer. Indeed, He is the one who is worthy of all of our trust, all of our praise, all of our obedience. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, increase our understanding of Jesus Christ the Messiah. Increase our appreciation for what He has done for us we believe, O oh Lord. Help us in our unbelief, O oh God. Increase our knowledge. Increase our faith. May this lead to an increase in obedience too. O oh Lord, I pray that you would help us to walk daily in this world, being mindful of the fact that we are disciples of Jesus. And we ask that you would teach us. We ask that you would teach us and that you would purify us further for our good and the glory of your name. And all of God's people say, Amen. Amen.